I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. As the number of coronavirus cases continued to soar, and the shortages of ventilators, masks, and other badly needed supplies become more acute, doctors and healthcare workers are starting to face agonizing ethical dilemmas. How should medical care be rationed in the midst of a pandemic with no end in sight? In overwhelmed emergency rooms, who should be put on ventilators and who should be denied them when there are not enough to go around? In short, who should live and who should die? We'll talk to Dr. Jonathan Moreno, a leading bioethicist at the University of Pennsylvania. And we'll talk to Yahoo News' national correspondent, Andrew Romano, on how the latest dismal news is affecting the election campaign on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So a lot of people were really startled when President Trump on Sunday, late Sunday at his White House briefing, threw out the number of 100,000 deaths from the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, He said, uh, we'll be doing a good job if we keep it down to 100,000. And um, as he was saying that, as we're speaking here now, We're about to cross a milestone that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks here, which is um, by the end of Monday, there will be more deaths in the United States from this pandemic than there were from the September 11th terror attacks, which was slightly less than 3,000. We're now up to uh, 2,800 So I think that is a number that will get people's attention that we've been talking. Certainly the 100,000 did. And it just underscores just how serious this situation is. Well, we've been talking really all along now about how covering this pandemic is the the only comparison as journalists in some ways is 9-11, because both are stories that affected the whole country in incredibly powerful and and kind of visceral ways, and the death toll being one of those. But, you know, the numbers are moving exponentially. This is really nothing that we've ever seen. And so that grim milestone of 3,000 people, which we are, 3,000 deaths, which we're going to pass soon, is going to be dwarfed in a very short period of time, sadly. And, you know, we'll be moving on from uh, 9-11 as a, as a benchmark and um, into other territory in terms of benchmarks. And uh, it's just um, almost too much to imagine. 
imagine um, that we are here now. I mean, it was only, you know, two and a half, three weeks ago that we were covering uh, Super Tuesday uh, as if it was the only story that really mattered in the country, which just goes to show you how insulated we can sometimes become in our coverage. And it takes uh, some horrific event like this to kind of pull us back and get broader perspective. Well, what is also almost too difficult to imagine are these ethical questions that doctors and nurses and healthcare workers are starting to face as we speak, which is how do you ration medical care in an environment like this where there just aren't enough ventilators, there aren't enough masks, people are hoarding, people are desperate, governors across the country are demanding them from the federal government, trying to buy them any place they can. And what it means on a micro level is that in emergency rooms, people are going to be going in sick, infected, desperately in need of treatment, and there isn't enough equipment to go around to save them. It is some of the starkest ethical questions that uh, anybody in the medical field face. And we've got a great guest to talk about it, uh, Dr. Jonathan Moreno. He's a professor of bioethics. He's been studying these uh, questions for years, and he's one of the best people to address where we are. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating conversation. And, you know, Dr. Moreno is an academic, and he's uh, a university professor, and he's been studying these issues in, in a sense, in an academic fashion. And I think now, all of a sudden, everything that he's studying has become real and I think a position that he never expected to be in. He uses a phrase in our conversation about uh, the only thing that can really be done in a situation like this to alleviate the the incredible emotional toll of having to make these decisions for, for doctors is to spread the moral burden. And that just, to me, was a chilling phrase. It's where we are right now. And so let's talk to Dr. Moreno and help us understand how to think through these very, very difficult ethical questions. And after him, we've got Andrew Romano, uh, our uh, resident uh, California political correspondent who's uh, following... uh all the uh, polls and developments in the election race, uh, which uh, are a campaign that obviously has been completely transformed by this pandemic. So uh, let's get on with the show. So we're pleased to have on the podcast Jonathan Moreno, uh, who is a professor of medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the co-author with Amy Gutman of Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die, about the development of bioethics. He has, of late, contributed a number of uh, really interesting columns to Yahoo News. And I should say, uh, by way of transparency, that uh, Jonathan's name comes up from time to time in my household with my parents in a very positive light as a great authority on these issues. My father dabbled in applied ethics, uh, so he's an extended friend of, of the podcast. So welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, thanks so much, Dan. So the pandemic has presented a whole host of really challenging bioethical issues that I'm sure, because it's a pandemic, we have never really faced on such a wide scale. And so I want to get 
to a number of those. But I really want to start with these excruciating decisions that doctors and, and medical professionals in hospitals across the country are facing right now, which is this idea of triage and how you make decisions about who is going to get access to these medical resources that are in such short supply. Ventilators, for example. You know, How does a hospital make a decision about whether to allow one ventilator, who gets it if there are three people who need it? And so tell me as a bioethicist how you think about those issues, how you think medical institutions around the country should be thinking about them right now. Right. Well, first, thank you again, Dan, for, and, and, Mike, have me, and Mike for having me on the podcast. So when we hear the word triage, we, we think normally of the military medicine and uh, the triage system was first formalized uh, by the French military in the 19th century. We are unaccustomed to hearing the term in the setting of civilian medicine, although, in fact, there are some inner city emergency rooms where they have triage desks, but people have tried to remove that term because of its implications from the civilian context. The major underlying factor here is that whereas military medicine prepares for the worst, which includes a dearth of critical assets and lots of injuries coming in at a, at a single time, or diseases coming in at a single time, which people don't realize often it's infectious disease that takes out more men and women in the battlefield and on, on, on vessels, naval vessels, than uh, injuries. Whereas on the civilian side, particularly in the last 30 years, we're preparing for best-case scenarios, having lots of material, lots of assets, lots of resources, lots of brilliant people available, you know, 20 or 30 people to do a cardiopulmonary resuscitation, for example. And this has been aggravated on the civilian side, as I said, in the last 30 years or so, because hospitals are getting better and better at having very narrow margins to be profitable, even if they are technically nonprofit institutions. So uh, when I was at, I started my career at George Washington University, and I remember very well in the 1980s, a GW administrator would do basically economics rounds with the residents. And his goal was to explain to them what things cost, what things cost the hospital. And I have to say that at the time, it made me and some of my colleagues a little anxious, right? Do we want the doctors to be practicing with so much awareness of what things are costing. Maybe we don't want them to be in that position, and different people will make different judgments based on what the costs are. But it was actually kind of the canary in the coal mine, this guy's economics rounds, because, in fact, what has happened in American medicine is that it's kind of a version of just-in-time provision of assets. You have enough, you have just enough to get by under, under normal circumstances. 90, 95% census, that means how many beds are filled, and you have a pretty good idea, a very good idea, an excellent idea of how, how many intensive care unit beds you have, how many ventilators, how many masks, how many gloves, all the rest of it, unless there's a surge. If there's a surge, you have some flexibility, as in a, a shooting, a mass shooting, for example. But in that case, you can still send people to the other emergency rooms, to the other institutions that are available in the community. I think the shock about this situation is partly that we don't have that alternative surge capacity right now. You can't, you know, you can't put an emergency room on bypass now the way you have been able to do historically if it's very busy. So this is part of the problem we're facing. Now what do we do? Right now there's this I, I sort of have waves of shock that what I've been doing for the last 40 years 
has come to this, a lot of its theory, and now facing the probability that some decisions will have to be made at American hospitals, and really, in some ways, there's no excuse for this, to either deny people access to an intensive care unit, to allocate ventilators. How will those decisions, in fact, be made? Well, one of the problems we have right now is that, in fact, there's a different approach in different parts of the country to this. And so my colleagues and, and I are, are following these policies that are being published. Some of them have been published in some states and now are being applied. And I think a concern is that some jurisdictions will apply the general principles somewhat differently. The general principle is we benefit as many people as we can. That's the sort of uh, utilitarian calculation that is the foundation. I guess you could call it utilitarian. I, I, I shrink a little bit from that word because it, it, it too has sort of kind of you know, funky implications. But you are trying to benefit as many people as you can. The second step then is to see, well, how can we protect, who are the force multipliers, as they say in the military? And, and the force multipliers, of course, in this case, are the, are the healthcare workers. And we're reading really chilling stories now, and we will for a while, and it, I think it, it will get worse, about how they're anxious and afraid, and they have to be protected because we, we need them to take care of everybody else. So that's the second category of people we need to worry about. Then there are people who have a very good chance of, of getting out of the ICU if they have adequate care. And then at that point, then you get into the really tough questions if you have a bunch of people showing up. And how can we equitably allocate the resources, particularly, you know, not only the ventilators, but the technicians, the people who are trained to use the, that equipment, which is a, something we really haven't talked about much. We're just talking about the, the gadgets. So, doctor, can I just break in here and just getting back to the sort of, you know, real life example uh, Danny was posing at the beginning. Three people come into the emergency room with COVID-19, all of them very ill, and you only have one ventilator. Is there a policy guidance on situations like this? You mentioned there's state-by-state state variability, but what about from the national level, CDC, or any national guidance on how these policies are going, should be applied, or what the policy is? Yeah, I mean, and, and by the way, Mike, even within states, there could be different policies depending on, or across states, depending on the hospital system that you're, you're working in, as to say, you know, uh, one entity can own a lot of different hospitals. And that system may have a policy, that hospital may have a particular hospital in that system may have a policy. So there's a ton of literature, but there's not a national approach. Now, we can argue about whether there should be a national approach or not, and that, I think, probably will be a big conversation after this is finished. Please, God, you know, in the next year, year and a half, two years. Do you think there should? Well, I think it's it's a conversation we need to have. I recognize that, you know, you and I recognize that we do have a system to a very great extent, a political system and a, lo and a cultural system to some extent that really emphasizes, you know, localism and, and state authority and letting the company, the different companies, in this case, Healthcare companies use their best judgment, but I think we need to probably take a good look at this from a national standpoint, if only because you risk a lack of trust or even more mistrust of a system in which it looks as though there are local histories that are getting in the, in the way of trust of the system at a national level. In other words, there are some parts of the country where you have more 
of a history of racial discrimination, of disability discrimination, and that it is a concern that when people are making these sort of ethical edge choices, that people will think that there's differential approach to these allocation decisions in some parts of the country or for some reasons than are other parts of the country or for other reasons. So Yeah, I think, in fact, civil libertarians have begun to speak up about this. And, you know, there's racial, there's ethnic, there's socioeconomic. There's also the potential of age discrimination, which is, I think, part of the, I think there was a 1975 Age Discrimination Act. For the most part, you're often going to be taking these resources away from people who are elderly because they are the least likely to benefit from the therapeutics. Well, they're less likely to uh, in general, I suppose. But if you take a a younger person uh, with uh, some serious background medical problems uh, that are ongoing as against a relatively healthy 80-year-old, you can't necessarily make a judgment based on age. Moreover, there is, as you say, although I'm not a lawyer, there is the Disabilities Act that protects people against age discrimination. So is this discrimination or is it part of a rational allocation process? Boy, these are really tough calls. Let me ask you, Jonathan, in very kind of practical terms, just how these decisions get made or are getting made in in hospitals? Is it left up to the physician? I understand that many hospitals have committees where these bioethical decisions uh, get made because it seems to me that if you leave it up to the attending physicians, you have situations where they are caught between their Hippocratic Oath and these larger utilitarian considerations, and you also don't want doctors advocating for their own patients and fighting with other doctors, it would seem to me. Right. So uh, can I just add one wonky comment to your reference, Hippocratic Oath, and then I will actually address your question, Dan. (laughs) The wonky comment is, it's sort of interesting. Almost everybody likes to cite Hippocratic Oath with the phrase, do no harm, but actually do no harm does not appear in Hippocratic Oath. So when my physician friends uh, cite Hippocratic Oath in arguing with me, I say, well, actually, no, you didn't say that at at your white coat ceremony or your commencement. But it is in another fragment of a document called the the Epidemics, probably also written by Hippocratic physicians around, well, we don't even know the, the oath was, but I'm getting way too wonky now. What we do know is that in this fragment of a document called Epidemics, the description of the disease that calls forth do no harm it looks very much like influenza. So the echoes of the Hippocratic tradition become you know, quite, quite relevant now. So back to your question, how will these decisions be made if they must be made? Again, normally in our whole history, really, I mean, since modern, the practice of modern medicine, you don't have to make allocation decisions with respect to ventilators. Uh, uh, but it might be the case that you do now. And as you say, you really for a couple of reasons. You don't want to put individual doctors in this position, not only because the, of the prospect of what people call moral injury, that is to say, the sense that they will have potentially for the rest of their lives, that they did everything they could, they made the right decision, and yet they feel this tremendous burden that they know they let people die. So you really want to try to protect the caregivers from that problem of moral injury. But the other reason is that they might make decisions that are a little different per patient, not because they consciously discriminate, but because you know the, we're human beings and and we do have what's called confirmation bias, right? We tend to think that what we think is the right is the right evidence for what we think. So what at least many systems are now 
trying to put in place is what are called triage committees. And these would be groups of, of healthcare providers, frontline providers, and ethicists who would be available at a moment's notice to help the physician reflect on the cases at hand and where the resource should go. In this case, the resource is a ventilator. And these would have to be done you know, pretty much uh, on the spot within, within minutes, if not perhaps hours, but often within minutes. So now we do have some experience with this in the history of, of medical ethics. As you undoubtedly know, in the 1960s, when there weren't enough kidney dialysis machines, first peritoneal dialysis, then kidney dialysis, there were committees that made the decision about who could get this life-saving intervention. This happened until the early 1970s when there was the exception that we now have for Medicare for dialysis for everybody who needed kidney dialysis, but there weren't enough in the early 60s, so the, those were made. Then, you, of course, we have uh, the fact that not, there are not enough organs to go around, and those decisions are made through a very complicated system. But what I think is so disturbing in this instance is uh, that there were apparently failures to prepare for the surge in the need of ventilators in the last couple of months. So again, to, to try to relieve the moral injury of the caregivers, groups of people will get together and uh, try to give some guidance and, you know, kind of spread out the moral burden. You know, let me ask you about the lack of planning for this and the lack of ventilators in stock and all that. As you have watched this play out, where where did the system fail? Where did the system fall down? Why did we, you know, the most advanced country in terms of medicine in the world could find itself in such a situation like this where we don't have the necessary equipment to treat the patients we've got? Yeah, not only the most advanced system in, in clinical medicine, but also in public health. <laughs> we were the leader in public health for the world until this, and I'm not so sure that people will look to us now. We were sending polio uh, vaccine to Hungary in the late 1950s, the communist government. This we were do we've been doing medical diplomacy for decades with in the Middle East to help with the peace process, for example. And so, not only in public health we've fallen down, and but as you say, also critically in in the in a clinical care setting. You know, I'm I'm reading what I'm everything I can about this, and it does look like we failed in that critical uh, four weeks. And before that, you know, arguably. There are people like Schaffner, William Schaffner at Vanderbilt and Mike Ulsterholm at Minnesota who have been warning for decades that we got off easy with H1N1 and MERS and SARS, and this was coming. Perhaps a once-in-a-century event, but perhaps more now because of, you know, many, for many reasons because of global travel uh, is one important reason that we're going to see more of this. Uh, the climate change is certainly causing this. So why, Mike? I mean... We, I think we got kind of fat and sassy in the last 40, 50 years. You know, in, the late, in the late 1960s, or early, maybe early 70s, it was 72, there was a, a paper that was maybe the most embarrassing paper in the history of modern American medicine, in which a distinguished person said, you know, we have now conquered the era of infectious disease. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And then within 10 years, he had HIV AIDS, right? So we've been so comfortable in the post-World War II era with so much travel and so much human contact and exchange, and, and we haven't worried enough, about, of course, about what the warming of the oceans is going to do to create more danger. There are something like 
6,500 to 7,000 different species of virus. I mean, we have been so lucky. And when I say we, I mean the global north in particular, and Europe and, and the United States and Canada, and, uh, the English-speaking countries in particular. We've been so fortunate. So now we can't be. Uh, there are people in the public health world who have said in the last few weeks, you know, we have had so many opportunities. We've had, we have stood up public health entities, public health systems, and then we've taken them down. We've stood them up and we've taken them down. We can't do that anymore. You know, Jonathan, when you were talking a minute ago about the United States being the, the world's leader in, in public health, I think one of the examples you cited was sending a polio vaccine to China. Actually, it was Hungary uh, in the late 50s. I'm sorry, to, to Hungary. Oh, that's right. Yeah. After yeah. the revolution. This is so yeah. interesting, right? I mean, this is what a leader we have been, right? The Soviet communists hated us. They put down violently that revolution in 56 in Hungary, yet in 57 or 58, right? Sabin went over with polio vaccine. But it, it, it calls to mind something that I, I heard you say recently, I think on a Yahoo News video, which is, and we want to get into the subject of the development of a vaccine for this uh, terrible virus, which you know uh, something about. But I think you noted the great irony that although we will develop this vaccine maybe in a year or 18 months, because we lack the production capacity that China has, we will be importing doses of vaccine from China. I mean, and India. And India is really, in, as you know, in, 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 Mike, in jeopardy now, right? I mean, they're facing anybody who's been to India. I was there a couple of years ago. I mean, anybody who's been to India sees that people live on top of each other. I don't see how you do, you know, any kind of distancing in India or, pa or Pakistan. There's a chilling piece uh, a few days ago in the New York Times about the situation in Pakistan. So, yeah, I mean, we need those supply chains to be functioning. And this is the great irony. Yeah. I was just going to say, tell us about the development, this race to create this vaccine, how it's being done, how it's produced, what the ethical considerations are in terms of trials, and, and then in terms of who actually gets it once we do develop it. Well, the first step, and this is going on right now uh, in a few places, is safety testing with uh, healthy young volunteers who are given informed consent and are given some kind of reimbursement for their time and trouble. You have to make sure it's safe. That stage is pretty much like what you do with a cancer chemotherapy in, in what's called phase one. And then the next step is to, well, normally what you do in the next step, if you you know had the luxury of some time, uh, which we probably do not in this case, you would normally do is field it and then you'd get feedback based on how people actually in C2 are responding to it, how well it's working. Probably can't do that in this case. So so some volunteers will, in, in the next stage, be challenged with the virus itself. Now, this is ethically tricky because you don't want to hurt people. They will know, but you still don't want to hurt them. So this is hard to do ethically until you actually have some therapies. We don't have therapies as we speak right now on this podcast. We hope we will have therapies available and there's, as you know, dozens of them that are on the shelf that are being tried, and there's some new ones that are being tried, uh, stuff that has been used anecdotally for SARS and, and MERS and, and then also perhaps HIV drugs. And What do you think of uh, hydrochloroquine, which is uh, a potential therapy that the president has, uh, has touted? Yeah, there's chloroquine and there's hydrochloroquine, and the latter is more often used in this country than the former. I'm not a physician or a scientist, so I don't, I don't want to say more than what I have 
uh, learned from attentively watching the lectures and list and reading the items uh, published in the literature. The evidence is at best anecdotal. The good news is that controlled studies will now break through the anecdotes and actually give us some good data. Well, as you know, uh, Doctor, the uh, FDA just, I think at three o'clock this morning, uh, approved on an emergency basis the use of these anti-malaria drugs. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, you know, desperate times and de- desperate measures, right? I mean, at, l- at least now they can get some data in a more observational careful context about the response. But one hopes to be wrong. There's not a lot of optimism about those approaches at the moment. But, you know, we one hopes we're wrong. And there's a lot of other stuff going on. Getting antibodies out of people who have actually had the virus, and there are a lot of those people. Yeah, plasma treatments, right? Exactly. And, and the plasma industry is... Uh, working double time to try to do this and do these what are, you know, they're called convalescent therapies. I I know some young people, and and you may as well, who have already had that interesting symptom of um, losing their taste and losing their sense of smell for a few days, and then they're fine. If those people could be a large group from whom we could get antibodies and, uh, and see if they're effective. So there are lots of efforts going on, but, you know, the ethics of this, the ethics of vaccine testing, as Dan points out, is to minimize the risk to the volunteers. So one step has to kind of layer on the other uh, to make this uh, more ethically justifiable. When the, a vaccine is available, then, and again, you'll go to the first responders so that we can protect uh, healthcare workers. You know, you may go to the military. We, we, I, we just mentioned the military a little earlier in the context of triage, but as you may know, there the army is trying to keep in place as many soldiers as they can right now around the world. There are, I understand, some some tactical modifications to move small groups around, but there is a worry right now on the military side that you could have some agent, some entity, some non-state actor try to exploit the situation uh, in the United States because we're really in an imbalanced position right now. So you you may well prioritize not only first responders in the healthcare setting in the country, you may also prioritize soldiers to make sure that they are protected. That is very common, as you may know. Soldiers got lots and lots of, of vaccinations, and that's part of, you know, part of their responsibility so that you can keep the force healthy. So I, I think they, although we haven't talked about them uh, very much in the media, I think there's no question, but there will be efforts on the part of the Army to make sure that those people are an early group that's vaccinated, and of course, sailors. I mean, what we saw on those on those cruise ships is just an example of what people you know who are in in uh, navies all around the world have known for generations. Those they are petri dishes, and those the sailors also need to be protected. So I think they'll be behind the list. Then for vaccination, you know, that'll be interesting. People who are particularly vulnerable, older people. You could imagine that we'll have to figure out how to do that, but we'll have some. I guess it's the good and bad news is we have some time to figure out what that what that approach is going to be because we're probably going to have a year to a year and a half until we have some. Well, on that uh, somewhat grim note, uh, we'll have to uh, let you go, uh, Doctor. But this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, uh, we appreciate you taking the time, and um, we hope to have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys.
we now have on the line from his home in L.A., uh, Yahoo News's national correspondent, Andrew Romano. Andrew, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So uh, you have been um, paying very close attention and covering the election this year, and we have spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about what impact the virus is having on the election, uh, both the mechanics of the election and the race itself. So I just want to start out there with what's you know probably a baffling question for many, which is that the polls thus far have shown an actual uptick in President Trump's approval uh, since the virus pandemic became clear. He's close to 50 percent, 49, I think, on Gallup. And uh, even Washington Post ABC poll over the weekend had the national race between Trump and Biden, a virtual tie. This is uh, comes as a shock to many who have been focused on the many failures of the Trump administration to take action while the uh, virus was spreading through the country. How do you explain Trump's uptick? Yeah. So just to sort of calibrate so we, we have a sense of, of the uptick, I like to look at the average of the polls. And he's at about a 50% disapprove and about 45% approve overall, if you average the polls together. But we've definitely seen movement, especially over the last week or so. The disapproval has ticked down from about 54% to 50%. The approval has ticked up from about 42% to about 45%. So there's real movement there. It's a, it's a real phenomenon. How, how do I explain it? Well, a couple of things. One, in times of national crisis and national emergency, the leader of the country almost always gets a bump in the polls. People kind of put partisanship aside a little bit um, as much as they can. Um, they want to think the best of the person in charge. They're scared. And so that explains it. And I think in that context, the, the uptick that Trump has seen is actually pretty small. You look at the leaders of other countries right now, they're getting bigger bumps in approval. You look back historically, George H.W. Bush during the Persian Gulf War was up around 75 percent. George W. Bush after 9-11, I think it went almost as high as 90 percent approval rating. So some of that's down to the polarized age we live in. But I would say if you put this in context, it's not actually a huge bump for Trump. That said, it's real and it's something worth watching. I think his performance as this goes on will have an effect on that, that approval. And the fact is that this virus has spread predominantly in parts of the country right now that are not Trump country, big cities on the coast, New York, Los Angeles, California, Washington. It'll be interesting to see what happens as more parts of this country are inevitably affected. What have you seen in the polling, Andrew, in terms of how the shock to the economy that we are already beginning to feel, how that will affect public opinion. You know, when you see more than 3 million people applying for unemployment uh, benefits, and this Thursday, there are already economists who are predicting that the next number could dwarf that one. What effect do you think that will have on the numbers? On Trump's numbers? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this is, we've never experienced uh, an economic shock this sudden. Uh, you know, we, we did a Yahoo News YouGov poll, and it was out you know, we did it middle of last week. It was out on Friday. And we asked some similar questions to the ones we'd asked two weeks before. 57% of Americans say the economy is getting worse. That's up 20 points over the previous two weeks. 
that's a very, very rapid shift. And I think it's going to get a lot larger. I mean, I, it's going to get to a point where, you know, almost no one is saying that the economy is getting better because this is going to get so much worse before it does get better. Um, and that it just depends how people sort of rate Trump's handling of the situation. They, you know, in one sense, our poll does say that they kind of recognize the mistakes that the Trump administration has made. Sixty percent in this latest uh, Yahoo News YouGov poll said the Trump administration was not adequately prepared to deal with the pandemic versus only 25 percent who said the opposite. That was a 14 point shift against the president over the previous two weeks. So people are hearing about the failures of this administration in terms of preparing. They've also given him fairly poor ratings on a bunch of leadership metrics during this crisis, including unifying the country. A majority, 56 percent, said fair or poor. Organizing the government's response, again, a majority, 53 percent, said fair or poor, and the list goes on. Overall, 49 percent disapproved of his handling of the crisis versus 43 percent who approved. So people are recognizing some of the missteps that the Trump administration made early on. I think the question now is they sort of also recognize the immensity of this, um, the fact that, you know, almost no administration would have been able to totally contain it, that this is a global pandemic we're in. And they're looking to you know, see what Trump does now. And I think yeah, in terms of I mean, his approval, what happens next is really important. Yeah, that was going to be my question, because there's no kind of exogenous event like a global pandemic. And so typically presidents, they get the credit if they're in office during boom times, and they get uh, criticized if there are problems with the, the economy, even if they've just taken an office. So the question is, how will they look at an event like this which, you know, as you just said, no president could have prevented, although certainly could have handled better. Yeah, yeah. And I think people recognize, I think people recognize that the Trump administration could have handled the early stages of this better. I mean, that's at least what our polling is showing. I think one thing that Trump should be worried about right now is that there is a lag time. It's just someone kind of compared it a little bit to seeing the light from a distant star. You know, we see the, the light from a star from six years ago. And what's happening with the trajectory of this virus is baked in. It's people who caught it weeks ago are starting to show up. And they're starting to show up in parts of the country that think we're assuming that Trump has assumed don't have a problem. This is everywhere. Yeah. And it's going to be a real problem for a lot of people. And I think it becomes more widespread. And the immensity of the toll that it's going to take, not only on the economy, but in terms of human health and human life becomes clear that, you know, beyond being first and foremost, a public health crisis will also be complicated politically for Trump. In other words, the actions he's taking now, they might be better than the actions he took a couple weeks ago, but the virus is already ahead of him. And that's going to, you know, it's going to be very difficult going forward. So, of course, Andrew, this is not the, the fall election is not a referendum per se on President Trump. It's an election. It's going to be an election between two people, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Biden has been relatively low profile uh, throughout. We had David Pluff on last week, Obama's former campaign manager, who clearly expressed concern about uh, Biden's lack of visibility uh, as he's stayed holed up at his uh, home in, in Delaware. I know the Biden campaign has been trying to step up their game a bit, but it's not clear to me how much he's broken through. Is there any polling on Biden? 
Biden's performance and how he's been handling this at all out there? Yeah, we have it in our poll, actually. So we asked people who they'd heard from various public figures um, during the last week. 61% of Americans said they'd heard from Trump. Only 48% said the same about Joe Biden. Meanwhile, 61%, so a sizable majority of those who had heard from Biden rated his performance as either fair or poor. So he was not getting good marks on his performance. That said, Biden led Trump by about six points in our poll on the question of who Americans would trust more to handle the coronavirus. So it's complicated, right? Biden's not out there. It's pretty difficult for even the Democratic, presumptive Democratic nominee to compete with the president of the United States during a pandemic. I am not exactly sure. I mean, it's why I'm not a political strategist, what he could do to break, quote unquote, break through. And a part of me suspects that it's not even that important. Um, the election is a while away. This pandemic is going to play out. It's kind of, we're kind of out of political season right now and in you know, public health and public policy season. And you know, I'm not sure that him sort of desperately seeking attention is necessarily the, the best political strategy, but you know, I, I could be wrong about that. But in that vacuum, um, you know, you hear a lot of talk about uh, Andrew Cuomo and how much uh, how how people are really paying attention to his uh, briefings. And uh, there's been sort of idle speculation out there about, you know, could Cuomo uh, somehow get into the race at this point? It doesn't seem to be any feasible way for him to do that. But I just wondered what you um, make of the. Uh, Cuomo boomlet, if that's what it is. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, sort of the Democratic part of the country is looking for leadership in this moment, right? And, you know, they have a hard time accepting Trump and, and Cuomo has sort of filled that vacuum. He has a real job. He's in the center of the crisis. He's handling this uh, every day and by most accounts is doing well. And so he's sort of stepped into that void and become the figure that, that sort of Democrats are holding up as, as the ex example of how, you know, they would lead. I don't know. I don't know what Biden could do. You know, he, he's not the vice president anymore. He's not a senator anymore. He doesn't have any official role. And to just go, you know, on a, a, a you know, a video cast from his, his house in Delaware and talk about what he would do differently every day. I, I, I just don't know if that, I don't know if that would break through. I mean, my, my feeling is kind of what Trump does right now is going to be very important for November. What Biden does, maybe not so important for November, that there will be time for, for the campaign. Um, you know, in England, how long do their campaigns last? A month? Yeah. I mean, they're much shorter. And, and I, you know, I, part of me thinks, suspects that this whole thing will expose how uh, absurd it is that we campaign for two years here in the <laughs> United States. So, Andrew, you talked about uh, Biden doing a video cast from his home in Wilmington, and you've been doing some reporting on how this virus spreading across the country, the impact it's going to have on the campaign and the mechanics of campaigning itself. And as part of that, you've been looking to history a little bit and what some of our candidates did back in the 19th century. This is actually a subject that we discussed with Joe Trippi, the Democratic strategist, on a previous episode of the podcast, uh, which is the Front Porch Campaign. And it's looking a little bit like that's what we might have, at least from Biden, for the foreseeable future. Future, given the fact that he can't travel, he can't uh, hold rallies, he can't shake hands and kiss babies. So 
what are the similarities and the differences between then and now? And uh, what's the campaign going to look like uh, going forward? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. and something I'm still sort of thinking through as I, I, I report on it. But, you know, the, the, the thing that was so interesting about that 1896 election between um, uh, McKinley and William Jen- Jennings Bryan is Bryan was out, you know, he was like a populist. He's out giving speeches all the time. He was a great speaker. And McKinley kind of ran a kind of a counterintuitive campaign where he stayed at home and brought people to him. Now, he brought, uh, I think, 700,000 people uh, to hear those front porch speeches who then went out and sort of proselytized and evangelized on his behalf. And it was an extremely well-run and efficient uh, and intelligent campaign. And he ended up winning that election. I think the question for Biden is, you know, uh, obviously he's not going to bring people to Wilmington, but we have the tools in our in our new media world for him to, to reach people. And how does he do that? How much does he have to do that? How does he cut through? How does he do that effectively as this campaign goes forward? Obviously, Trump has a megaphone that Biden's not going to have. I think Biden's been doing some good things so far in terms of advertising. Obviously, again, it's 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 early to go off with big television buys and no one's really tuning into that right now. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. But what Biden can do at this point, I think, is start to shape the narrative, right, that he can he can talk about the failings of the administration. He can keep that sort of ball in the air. His ads have focused on the ways that Trump was not prepared, um, the ways that he has said explicitly that he doesn't take responsibility. And I think as this crisis escalates, that that will be the kind of main way that, that Biden campaigns, not so much by giving speeches, but by trying to keep that narrative afloat in the midst of the crisis that this is getting worse and that Trump should bear responsibility for that. That can kind of, I think that that, that's where his campaign is focused right now. How are things uh, out in L.A. uh, right now? More and more states are imposing these stay-at-home orders. California had one early on. What's been the response so far? Yeah, I'm here in L.A. I'm stuck in my house. Wife and two kids, kids home from preschool. Both of us are trying to work and do childcare full time. It is, uh, it's something that you know everyone is going through. And you know, it's familiar in New York. It's familiar in Washington State and California. The rest of the country might not be there yet, but it's the direction that we're heading. And I think California is really interesting as a case study in bending the curve, as they say, flattening the curve. If you implement social distancing early enough, when the case count is low, can you prevent? your state, your locality, your region from escalating into the type of crisis that we're seeing in New York City right now. And it's preliminary, and we don't have all the data, but it does look like this is working here on the West Coast. Um, We have a a tenth of the cases and a tenth of the deaths that, that New York has right now. We'll see where that goes. But we started distancing. We started sheltering in place not only a few days before New York, but earlier in the spread of the virus. The virus had been spreading in New York for a while before that was put in place. Here, we did not have the same kind of spread. And so, fingers crossed, knock on wood, um, my hope is not only for, you know, personal reasons, but because it's a, it can hopefully be a model for the rest of the country to get on top of this, to start as early as possible, and hopefully keep that case down, count down, make sure that the hospitals are not overwhelmed. Um, and that's what we're seeing right now uh, in, in California. So you're... I should point out that as we are speaking, the governor of 
Virginia has just imposed the stay-at-home order until June 10th, which I think is the the furthest out we've seen. And if that's going to become the new norm, that significantly prolongs the time that people are going to be living uh, under these restrictions. Yeah, it's going to keep going. The sort of smartest estimates I've seen have said June is when we could possibly start opening, (laughs) reopening parts of the economy. It seems like the governor of Virginia is recognizing that reality. I'm not expecting my kids to go back to school anytime soon. And I think the rest of the country should get ready for that. Your governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, has gotten a lot of attention in this crisis, been very proactive. What about the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, Eric Garcetti? I know he has a extremely robust social media presence because I follow him on Instagram and he seems to be everywhere, you know, at the same time. So what have you seen in how he's handling this? You know, Bill de Blasio here in New York got some criticism for not taking the threat of this pandemic uh, seriously early on. How's um, Garcetti doing? Yeah, Garcetti and and Newsom have been in lockstep, as has London Breed, the, the mayor of San Francisco, Really, all the political leaders here in the sort of big population centers in, Cal- in California, um, you know, we had the stay-at-home order here in L.A., I think, a day before the statewide stay-at-home order. That was March 18th, March 19th. New York was a couple days behind on the 22nd. Garcetti and Newsom have been very clear about the threat that this poses, what people should expect. You might even say they've sounded pessimistic. I mean, I guess it's a question of whether you, you, you kind of count it as realism or pessimism, but they have been clear with the public about the danger that, that there will be lots of cases, there will be lots of deaths, that New York could present one possible vision of our future if we don't take seriously these shelter-in-place and social distancing measures. So, you know, I would, I would say that they've really been sort of setting the tone, uh, the pace for the country, along with um, Jay Inslee up in Washington State, which had the earliest outbreak, um, just showing, you know, you have to take this seriously before things get out of hand, because once it gets out of hand, it's too late. It's a fascinating point, and we've talked a bit on this podcast about the importance of clear, direct communication from public health officials um, and politicians. And it seemed to me that there was a long period in you know the first few weeks of this pandemic that politicians and and our federal government leaders uh, seemed reluctant to talk openly about the really dire worst case scenarios uh, the idea of uh, potentially you know 2 million or more people dying or best case scenarios now you're hearing 100,000 or 200,000 dying you're beginning to see that and hear that from our from officials now Deborah uh, Burks in particular has started to talk that way i think the fear was instilling panic in people but if you're not realistic about what the threats are then you're not going to be able to get people to do the things that they need to do to mitigate the risks here. And I think we've seen that evolution over the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, look, I mean, people have seen what's happening in New York. And I think that helped them realize that when their public officials are saying tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people could die, that they're not fear-mongering, that they're just talking straight with them. And, you know, I, it's it's very unfortunate that it takes an outbreak of that scale, I think, for people to get it. But I, people are starting to get it. And you see it, the shift in the rhetoric, you know, in the Trump administration. And, you know, fortunately, in, in, you know, here in California, I think, you know, our political leaders were ahead of the curve 
on that and that people took this pretty seriously early on. And again, knock on wood, but the early data is showing that, you know, it's not that we're not going to have a serious problem here, just that we stepped in and we put shelter in place early enough that we'll be able to keep the curve under the level at which it would overwhelm our hospitals. And that's really when, you know, you get that the, the, the deaths skyrocketing because people can't get the care they need. Unfortunately, with with our president, when you know when he finally shifts his rhetoric, it still was about how well he's doing. Um, I think he just said that uh, if a hundred thousand people die in this country, he will have done a good job. I'm not sure that's uh, how people define a job well done, but at least acknowledging the reality that that many people could or likely will die um, is, I think, an important step. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that question of responsibility, I think, will be a question, you know, if we want to talk about politics going into the fall campaign. You know, Trump said, you know, I don't take responsibility at all. He's been patting himself on the back at every stage of this. And I think, uh, you know, depending on the scale of the pandemic in the United States and how many people are affected and how many people die, it's going to be a real political argument uh, over how much responsibility he bears for that. Well, let's remember that it was our uh, colleague Hunter Walker who asked him how he would rate himself on a scale of 10, and Trump said 10. I would not be surprised to see that in a Biden campaign ad sometime down the road. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've seen this throughout American political history. And when times are tough, there, there can be a credibility gap that opens up with your president. And it's been a little bit tough with Trump because we do live in such a polarized age for that to kind of break through um, and to reach critical mass. But nothing clarifies the stakes and the effect that the government can have than seeing your friends and family sick, people you know dying. And so I do think that this will be a test for Trump. You can't happy talk your, your way out of this. You can't say that you get, you know, you get a 10 and have people believe you when people they know uh, have died or are in the hospital. And and, yeah. and so, you know, just in terms of politics, it's going to be a tricky path for him because he doesn't he doesn't um, he doesn't kind of calibrate t- toward that yeah. kind of situation very well. Well, as David Axelrod said, you can't spin a pandemic. So right. Um, exactly. Anyway. Exactly. Andrew, thank you so much for joining the podcast, for giving us your take on the impact that uh, all of this is having on our politics and uh, giving us a, a update on how things are going in Los Angeles. Uh, let's hope for your sake and everybody who's out there that uh, what you're what you're seeing in terms of being a little bit ahead of the curve is will play out that way and that uh, Los Angeles will avoid the catastrophe that we're dealing with in New York right now. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for having me on and stay safe. You too. Thanks to bioethicist Jonathan Moreno and Yahoo News national correspondent Andrew Romano for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.